Hello, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fintech Cafe, which is a live show on Clubhouse. It takes place every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific. You're listening to the recording of the show. Today is episode 38, and we're joined by Bill Barheit, who's the founder and CEO of Abra. A couple of things before we get started. Munisha and I, your host, we have full-time jobs, and our show, Fintech Cafe, is not affiliated to our employer. We're not providing any investment advice. We're also not endorsing any product. What we are doing is trying to cultivate a community of thought leadership within financial technology so we can all be better informed about what's happening around us. With that, let's kick it off with introductions. I'll go first. My name is Ambika Sharma. I am a product manager within the fintech space in which I've been involved for almost a decade. I work within financial services in United States, Latin America, and Europe. With that, I'll hand it over to Manisha for her introduction. Thank you, Ambika. Manisha Chakrapani, co-host with Ambika on this FinTech Cafe. Very excited, Bill, to have you on our show and can't wait to increase my IQ by several points at the end of the show. With that, Bill, could you give a brief introduction? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. My name is Bill Barheit. I'm the founder and CEO of Abra. I'm a longtime technology and capital markets guy based here in Silicon Valley near Palo Alto. And I've been doing everything from kind of dot-com internet to payments and now crypto for about 25 years. Was a researcher before that for NASA and, and the CIA and another life. But my passion the last 10 years has been how this new crypto technology can be leveraged to improve people's lives, ranging from financial inclusion uh, to wealth management, to building better banks, new types of lending. And I'm happy to get into all of it. And uh, so my day job obviously is running Abra. Abra is a crypto banking service. We run the uh, brokerage where you can trade uh, cryptocurrencies very simple. We run a high yield service where you can earn interest on dollar stable coins and Bitcoin, Ethereum. And then lastly, we run a lending service where you can borrow against your crypto holdings. Would it be a banking uh, service with crypto? Is that one way to yeah. think about it? Yeah, we, we, we think of ourselves as a next generation crypto bank. And that includes the brokerage, the high yield for interest and the lending. Absolutely. Super. And then uh, let's talk about your journey, Bill, to Abra, and you founded it in 2014. But even before that, I know your exposure to crypto started with, I think you believe, the white paper that you read and how that um, influenced your direction. Yeah. So I was doing a lot of work in emerging markets, also frontier markets like, like Haiti and Central America and parts of Southeast Asia, which are highly underserved, very cash-driven markets. This all predates cryptocurrencies. I was doing a lot of work in, in leveraging smartphones and even feature phones to help people become banked, manage, the, manage remittances, get microloans, things like that. And had roadblock after roadblock put in front of me from a regulatory perspective, even when dealing with you know, basically small-dollar cash consumers. It, it was very complex very difficult to deal with. And the idea of Bitcoin immediately was, was very attractive to me. I remember reading the white paper a few months after it was maybe three months at the most after it was released. And, you know, it was like, wow, this guy 
or gal or or gals think they've really solved this so-called double spend problem, which which means in 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 very simple terms that you could have uh, a software running on a phone or desktop that allows you to become your own bank. Really, I mean that's what it comes down to, and so. That idea, given what I was dealing with at the time, was extremely attractive to me. And um, you know, after uh, a few months of of digging in deeper, it started to take off in parallel. And uh, you know, I was hooked, and eventually was able to sell my existing business, and then started Abra as a result. But yeah, it really resonated with a lot of the problems that I had been dealing with firsthand for several years in these frontier markets, and ironically now is is become a global phenomenon but is is really most acute in terms of its its importance when you hear about the problems and and places where you know a trustless governmentless monetary system can add strong value whether it's what's happening this week in Canada where the government seems to has gone berserk or you know places where we kind of unfortunately have expected the government to go berserk like in argentina or you know uh, venezuela or turkey places like that where where the monetary policies have been problematic to say the least and that's fantastic so i was just curious about bill you were in some ways ahead of the time thinking about crypto what were some of the earlier challenges that you came across and what made you persist and continue to evolve your th- thinking around where crypto was headed? Well, that's a great question. I would say a couple of things. One, the hardest, the biggest challenge at first was really explaining it. I did, I did the first TED talk on Bitcoin in 2012, literally 10 years ago next week. And I, I rattled my brain for a couple of months on how to explain this thing to you know, all the movers and shakers that go to TED, you know, I'm sitting there in front of Bill Gates and, and Jeff Bezos types. And, you know, they, most of them had either never heard of it or, you know, it was, it wasn't worth anything. Right. So it was like this kind of software toy that was this interesting idea that you could basically have, you know, a little bit of money that in the aggregate wasn't even worth a few million dollars yet. And how was I going to explain how important this could become to the entire planet. So that was challenge number one. And, you know, if you watch that presentation, which is on YouTube, it's, it's almost laughable how, how much easier it is to explain Bitcoin today versus 10 years ago. But more importantly, I would say just this idea that a kind of self-sovereign system that had no state actors could scale to be worth a trillion dollars was just not believable to most people at the time, right? The premise of the talk I ended up giving was, is it time for a, a new global reserve currency, which was a laughable premise for a talk on a, on a currency that was worth, like, I think less than less, certainly less than a billion dollars at the time, probably like less than a, less than a couple hundred million, you know, which <laughs> it, it's effectively zero. So, so, so many challenges, right? Just how do you make it useful? How do you build the on-ramps and off-ramps, which means in English, if, I'm, if I've never gotten into Bitcoin, there was no crypto at the time, it was just Bitcoin. And if I get into Bitcoin for the first time, like how do I get my dollars out of my bank account and into this thing, 
right? So today we have a lot of answers to those, those questions and challenges, but 10 years ago, there was very few answers and, and huge challenges in just building an ecosystem. How do you make it easy to store this stuff? How do you make it easy to send? How do you make it easy to convert? And then of course, eventually we had lots of cryptocurrencies and people wanted to exchange between them for different reasons, which is a whole other topic. But the basics were a huge challenge 10 years ago. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I'm sure creating that ecosystem, <laughs> you probably saw a very early, early start to that. So that's, thanks for sharing. So switching gears to the cryptocurrency, currency in itself has such a strong foothold as it relates to um, the well-being uh, of people in general, right? Like stability and security uh, that it provides. Where do you feel cryptocurrency is in terms of creating that sort of stability or legitimacy that can actually in turn influence the well-being of people in general? Well, I think there's there's several stages of evolution that will have to happen in order for it to become pervasive as an answer to that question of when does it really become a safe haven, uh, store value and means by which everyone can transact. The reason the value is going up so quickly over these 10 years, effectively going up a couple hundred percent a year unabated for, for 10 years with a lot of volatility is the promise of the answer to your question and incredibly strong network effects as a result of that, right? Bitcoin is not yet a, a haven for, for inflation, people trying to leave you know, inflation behind, not yet, but the promise that it will eventually get there combined with its guaranteed scarcity is creating enormous network effects. And those network effects are, are also incredibly volatile, which is exactly what we saw in other technologies with similar network effects like the internet. If you watched Amazon stock and the dot-com crash versus today, it's incredible, right? But Bitcoin has gone through a similar adoption cycle. And I think that, you know, the promise is that at some point in that adoption cycle, it will become worth so much because of the network effects that it won't make sense for everyone who's got it to just hoard it. They'll want to spend it. And that represents a whole other challenge because whether it's Ethereum or Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, they're really not built to scale for everyday payments, right? You know, Bitcoin is, is incredibly inefficient, as a matter of fact, right? People say, oh, this blockchain stuff's got a lot of efficiencies and makes things cheaper. And it's actually completely untrue. It actually makes things very expensive and very inefficient. But it wasn't trying to be either of those things. It was actually trying to eliminate centralized trust, right? That's the, the, the beauty of the problem that Bitcoin solves. It's not here to be faster or cheaper. It's here to be governmentless or, you know, centralized partyless, if you will. And the question then becomes, well, if it becomes worth $20 trillion, more than gold, for example, eventually people are going to want to spend it or at least borrow against it to spend, which we can talk about as well. And so now what's been happening for the last few years is these new technologies on top of Bitcoin, on top of Ethereum are being created. You'll hear this phrase called layer two. And layer two is kind of analogous to saying, okay, if the Bitcoin blockchain or the Ethereum blockchain is like a, a decentralized federal reserve, 
we kind of need banks on top that make it possible or PayPal's on top that make it possible to move money person to person, but without breaking the core tenets of, of, of these technologies, which is peer to peer with no middle, no middle person or entity, you know, that would act as a, as a trusted third party. And so now we have these technologies like lightning and analogous technologies and Ethereum and other, what we call layer one protocols that actually can allow in theory for this to scale for payments to hundreds of millions or billions of people. We're not quite there yet, but you know, Square is working on it. We're working on it. Uh, a lot of other companies are working on it. And I think the promise is there. Countries have started to adopt it. You probably heard about what's going on in El Salvador, where there's a big push to make lightning-based payments viable in-country. And other countries are looking at it as well. I've seen startups in India, Turkey, looking at this. So it's going to go through phases. We're still really early. I mean, we've never had a new asset class in our lifetimes before digital currency. And so the idea that this new asset class is as far along in kind of its adoption and network effects as it is after 10 years is astounding. It's ahead of the internet itself, right? It's kind of slightly ahead of the commercial internet in, in terms of adoption and way faster than the research internet in, in terms of adoption. So, so in the big picture, we're still very early and no one knows for sure how it's going to play out. But the idea that Bitcoin as money, Ethereum as the next generation for banking via DeFi and entertainment via NFTs and collectibles is, is really changing everything, which leads to this whole other conversation, which I'll, I'll stop in a second, <laughs> around what is decentral, decentralization and what does the decentralization movement really mean? But um, sorry for the long diatribe, but you can see that maybe via all that, that we're, we're just really super early here. Bill, I actually studied economics and my bachelor thesis was actually looking at the role of financial uh, role of institutions into how an economic system is produced, like using uh, game theory and how mm -hmm. the whole system and works. Uh, so like you said, that crypto, at least in the beginning, was established to re remove the trust from the core of it. I can have lots of conversation on it, around it, but given the time, I want to move away from that and toward Abra and talk about your product offerings. And then maybe mm -hmm. if there's enough time, we can come back to like the philosophical or the economic conversation around cryptocurrency as a tool of payment and as a tool of um, trading asset class. So gear, switching gears to Abra, your website says that I can buy, trade, borrow and earn interest on crypto. So let's say I, as a consumer, I use Abra to buy, trade, invest in hundred different currencies. I can also use my crypto holdings as collateral and get a loan from you. Could I talk about the lending side of your offering first? starting with economics of it, like how, how does this work using crypto as collateral for lending? Yeah, absolutely. So one of, there's a few, there's a few analogous things in, in existing society. If we start with the wealthy, right, the wealthy have been borrowing against their equity holdings for decades, or in English, I, I hold a bunch of Apple shares. I have no interest in selling them because maybe I'm convinced the price is going to keep going up for the next 20 years. I don't want to pay capital gains. So I'll just borrow against those shares. I'll use them as collateral. And 
borrow, maybe pay back the loans when it makes sense or roll them over, maybe sell a small amount of shares to maintain a certain loan to value ratio, you know, whatever, whatever makes sense. But there's a lot of precedent for people doing that. One of the things I've often thought about is, you know, I, it looks like a, there's a fair amount of folks who are either in, of Indian heritage or maybe from India on the on, on this uh, clubhouse. And you're probably familiar with what happens in India with with gold as generational wealth. But ironically, there's very little that you can do with it other than pass it down from generation to generation, even though it has uh, a strong perceived value. Partly wear because it. It, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, for sure. But very few do in our in our discussions because we've had the same idea except on very, very special occasions, maybe family weddings or other gatherings and things like that. At least that's our understanding. And But what if you could borrow against that wealth? And so so this idea that you could, could do a collateralized loan, the same way you would do, again, borrow against stock or maybe even have a home equity loan, but use cryptocurrency as your kind of core store of value against which you're able to borrow over time. So effectively, you're you're holding an appreciating asset, which is crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, et cetera, and borrowing in a depreciating asset, which is the dollar or your home country's currency. And that's the uh, Abra, Abra borrow model. And that's kind of creates a, a flywheel on the deposit side of our business where consumers can earn interest by uh, depositing uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum or even dollars, which are converted to stable coins and earn, you know, in some cases, you know, 25 to 50 times more than what they would earn in a normal bank account because we're paying anywhere from, you know, five to 11 or 13 percent interest, depending upon how much you're holding, your kind of your reward status at our system, et cetera, et cetera. And then we're able to effectively use those deposits then to also provide these collateralized loans. And so while nothing's risk-free, the level of collateral in the system is high enough where, you know, in the what two to three years where we've been doing this already, we've never experienced a, uh, a loss on any lending contract that we've done, either business or consumer. And generally that's because of the collateralization rates in the system which are significantly higher for the most part versus collateralization rates you would see on a mortgage, for example, where, where it's usually like less than 25% collateralized. So, so it's a very compelling way of using cryptocurrency as kind of your personal base asset class over time. And we have more and more customers now who actually do their personal accounting based on crypto first and dollars second because they do see it as an appreciating asset over time. Got it. So who are your customers? Are these institutional customers or a mix of institutional and consumers? Yeah, it's the latter. So we have a couple of million retail customers, which range the gap, every socioeconomic and, and income pyramid component you can imagine in over a hundred countries are our clients of Abra today. And then we have our high net worth business, our wealth management business, and then we have our institutional business. And, and so they all complement each other, right? So we have companies that use high yield products for corporate treasury now. So they can also earn more on their, you know, on their cash reserves, just like our consumers do. And so then we have family offices 
who work with our wealth management team to get exposure to crypto. And then, of course, we have our, our, our very simple consumer app, which you can just download off the App Store for iPhone or Android and just get started immediately as an individual and you know, earn high yield, be able to trade, swap across different cryptocurrencies, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we're servicing all of these different clients and they're creating a symbiotic relationship across all of our other clients by providing those deposits and loans and loans and deposits, just like a typical bank. The difference being that the majority of any interest generated is going back to the depositor. Got it. Okay. So for the loan, I'm looking at your website and I'm looking at the loan calculator. First question I have is, are you considered a balance sheet lender? In other words, like, do you securitize these loans? So, so we're not considered a balance sheet lender in the bank sense. What we're doing is we have collateral. So we worked first of all with a trust bank called Prime Trust. They're a U.S. chartered, Nevada chartered uh, trust bank, and they manage the deposits. We then borrow those deposits and generate the yield, which then gets paid back to uh, either the consumer as the depositor or the business as a depositor. And the collateral for uh, those loans would be, you know, the Bitcoin or the Ethereum or the dollars that you're using to borrow against. And so the collateral can range anywhere from, you know, a 10% LTV, which would be 10X the collateral. And at that very low loan to value ratio, we'll actually give you a zero interest loan. And then all the way up to a 50% loan to value ratio where the you know interest rate might be, you know, somewhere in the seven to 8% range, if I remember the numbers correctly. I think you're looking at the loan calculator. I'm not, but it, I think the numbers are, are more or less correct. So, yeah. so that's the, the right way to look at it. Yeah, so we can go into these numbers. You mentioned loan to value. I just want to make that clear for the audience. Uh, maybe they don't, they're not aware of this term. So let's say I have one Bitcoin and today mm -hmm. it's, the market is pricing it at 45, let's say $44,000, keeping it simple. Mm -hmm. So I want to use my one Bitcoin as a collateral to take out a mm -hmm. loan from you mm -hmm. on your website. The loan terms are anywhere, I guess it's six months. What is this digit here? I think it's six, six to months to- Six yeah. to 24 months. And then you can roll the loan over as well. So we'll give you for one Bitcoin, a 0.1 Bitcoin dollar equivalent, which is about $4,500. We'll actually give you that for no interest at all. So that's a zero interest loan and we'll do that for anyone. And if you want a larger loan, we'll go up to, I believe the amount would be about $22,750 roughly. 50% LTV. Yeah, exactly. That's a 50% LTV. So the loan to value of the collateral in this case is 50%. So we're lending you half the amount of the collateral. So it's still your Bitcoin. We're simply holding the Bitcoin as collateral and are able to also, in some cases, lend a portion of that collateral against other collateralized uh, loans as well. So that enables us to pay the high yield that we're able to pay to our depositors, in, a, in my opinion, in one of the safest high yield models that you will ever, ever see. The great thing about this is, is that let's say somebody pays even 30% down payment on a mortgage and the housing, you have a housing crisis like you did in 2007, 
you have two problems, right? One, the value of the house has fallen significantly and two, it's not liquid, right? So it could take months to, or years even to sell the house and go through that system. Whereas in our case, the collateral is liquid 24 seven, right? There's no off hours for trading this stuff. So if there's a problem in the markets, both the borrower and the lender are protected because of the liquid nature of crypto. And that's one of the reasons we've never experienced a loan default in the several years we've been we've been doing this type of lending. Thank you. So let me just uh, reconfirm because uh, not everybody's probably looking at the website. So again, sure. using the example, one Bitcoin is today valued at around $44,000. So if I want to use my one Bitcoin as collateral, the maximum loan to value that will be permitted by Abra would be 50%. So that would be $22,000 worth of loan that I can take out. If I do 50% LTV, I do have to pay an interest rate of about 10%, 9.95%. There is an option to do 0% interest, but then uh, loan to value is only 15% of whatever the market rate is. So going with that, the, so the next question I want to ask is around a potential down downturn in the economy because the asset that I'm using as collateral is highly volatile in price. So how do you personally hedge or Abra, how do you hedge against a market downturn and how does a significant market downturn impact the customer? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. That's a very smart question. So that's the reason why the highest loan to value ratio that you can do as a consumer is 50% because we're not waiting for uh, Bitcoin to fall 50% before we take action. In other words, if the price of Bitcoin falls, let's say it doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. Let's say it falls 40%. By the time it gets even close to that, probably let's say half of that, you're going to get a margin call where you're either going to be required to post more collateral or a portion of the Bitcoin we're holding for you would be as collateral would be sold to put you back into compliance with the loan. And um, you would be getting this all kinds of disclosures when you take the loan, but then there's also lots of warnings when you might be approaching this to make decisions for yourself so that you're not scrambling to um, figure things out. But this is all explained in our FAQs on the web and the loan disclosure docs and et cetera, et cetera. And so it's very rare, very, very rare in our history that we've had forced liquidations, but that is the kind of end game for protecting the system in the case of a steep fall in price of the underlying assets, including on the business side, right? The business loans and the consumer loans basically work the same way. It's just that on the business side, we actually have to do way more work for qualification. We have to take balance sheet details, use of fund details, a whole bunch of onboarding things that can take weeks actually. Whereas on the consumer side, it, it's most onboarding processes take minutes to maybe an hour or two at the most. Got it. So similar to stock market margin trading call. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And then in the uh, adverse scenario, let's say I borrow, but then I default, I don't pay back. Do you have a lien to my crypto collateral? How does that work? Yeah, so in the sense that if if you don't make a payment and you go into default, if you're if 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 you have higher than that fifteen percent LTV where there's zero interest, then yes, we would basically sell enough crypto to make the payment and put you in compliance. So it's so exciting, all of this. 
I feel like you're talking from the future <laughs> with us. So just to close out this topic on lending side, could you summarize or anything that I haven't asked around the differences between crypto-based collateral lending versus regular lending? Anything that I may have missed out on this topic? Yeah, I think the most important points here are that we're seeing more and more people who want to like, quote unquote, bank themselves by holding Bitcoin, holding Ethereum, holding another cryptocurrency as kind of family wealth or generational wealth and have strong conviction that that is the future of money and they're going to get the upside now. And as the gains come in, people are simply excited to access some of those gains, but one, don't want to sell because they have conviction that the crypto assets will continue to appreciate in the mid to long term. And two, they would prefer to um, access those gains without paying capital gains taxes, in particular in the US or in Europe, where those rates can, can be quite high. And, and so this lending model is a very efficient way to deal with both issues. Hey, Bill, just jumping in regarding some of the use cases, I know one of the key objectives uh, that got you into the road to crypto was the financial inclusion piece. And some of what I think I've heard so far seems to be a little more directed at um, maybe mid-affluent and institutions. So curious about the whole road to growing. I, I know you've referenced the getting the next 1 billion onboarded to crypto. How are you working towards that financial inclusion? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think the answer is there's no one answer, but I'll give you, without being too wordy here, like a, a couple of examples of where the growth is coming from, which gives you a feel for the scalability. So in the fourth quarter of last year, we signed up hundreds of new, hundreds of thousands of new customers from the likes of India, Turkey, Bangladesh, Philippines, Central America, and with very, very little marketing, almost no marketing. And, and so it's, it's a lot of word of mouth on how easy it is to use Abra in, in these countries. We have a great, we have a token model we've created with a rewards currency that actually is liquid so you can trade it and, and it's used in this referral system. And so it's kind of gamified the ability for people in, in, in emerging markets to, to get into Abra, but in a way that also is allowing them to get ex quick exposure to Bitcoin. They're able to convert their local government issued currencies, which we call fiat currencies into stable coins so they can hold dollars if they want and earn interest on dollars. And, and so if you're in, a uh, place like Bangladesh and you don't want to hold local currency or in Indonesia, you can quickly convert that currency into dollars and earn up to like 11 or 13% interest on your dollars. And so, so in that regard, it's been really gratifying to see how ABRA is being used. We've got also have several countries where we've set up cash networks and we were the first to do this in crypto where you can um, you can basically deposit into your Abra account via cash and withdraw via cash. And so some of our users on their own have figured out that this is a great way to bypass existing remittance systems at very, very low cost. So so now you have a way to you have a way to you know pay for 
money transfers, which could up cost up to 15% of funds and, and now basically do it at, you know, like one third, one third the cost or even less by basically sending somebody Bitcoin via the Abra app or even dollars via the Abra app. And then you can withdraw in cash in your in your home country in the Philippines or Guatemala, where we've seen people do this or parts of the Middle East, for example, where there's a lot of uh, remote workers. Got it. The, the the money mobility use case and remittances, I think, was one of the earlier reasons I think you mentioned that you got interested in the space. Has that picked up pace more recently, given that that's where you've indicated, right, that the inclusivity comes and creating that security around the currency aspect? Yeah, I think right now we're still in a phase where it's very wealth management driven. Our business, you know, we're managing probably about a little over $1.5 billion in assets, crypto cash. And the vast majority of that is definitely for people who want to be investing in the crypto space or uh, are holding dollars and getting high yield return or using Abra for trading, which has been, you know, fantastic business for us. We do see a halo effect on people using Abra for uh, money transfer and payments, but it's still a very small part of the business. But I wouldn't be surprised if it became a big profitable part of the business over time. And not just even in developing markets. I I, I predict that you're going to see a lot of wealthy and middle class investors using Abra as their core bank account within a couple of years, because again, they're going to be holding all this crypto and it's going to make no sense to do this via multiple accounts. And you're going to see all kinds of payment services built on top of these accounts where people might be holding a few hundred thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin and Ethereum as generational wealth and don't want to sell it. So they simply get a Visa card or an American Express card with a credit line on it and they can you know, spend against that at will. Very cool. In this sort of forward looking view that you have, how is the growth strategy for Abra uh, going to play out uh, or what can you share with us on that front? Well, I hope it's a billion people soon, <laughs> but, you know, so how is you need it a calendar on the website. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We need to do a, a million more fintech cafes. So look, I think that as a company that spent almost nothing on marketing, so unlike the, the crypto bowl that we just had, where there was like six Super Bowl crypto commercials, we've been very frugal. And so we've managed to become profitable and, and, and fast growing without doing that. But that's not sustainable. We, in, in order to maintain a reasonable level of growth, we will be spending significantly on marketing starting this year. And I'm excited about it, nervous about it at the same time because, you know, it's, it's marketing, but um, it's necessary. We've had a fantastic partner network that's created an, a referral incentive system for us. And we're doing that now in, in more places with more partners on the wealth management side, we're looking at the RIA space. We're looking at other international partners in the wealth management area to scale the business now. And, and that's going really well. We're building out our high net worth sales team. So, so every kind of piece of the income pyramid has a place in Abra and it's just kind of all hands on deck to scale. And there's some really cool features that we're rolling out this year and 
you know, we'll be doing some announcements in the NFT space, the DeFi space and payments. And so really building out a full, a full stack of, of crypto banking features. Bill, I'm surprised that you don't think that you don't invest in uh, marketing. You actually have a very popular YouTube channel. It's called Money Talks for those who are listening and interested. And it has about 35,000 subscribers. So uh, I think you are the marketing machine of Abra and you've done really well in terms of building the content and also thought leadership in this space. I have two questions and then we should open up to the audience. One question is, as you were talking about growth, I couldn't help but ask, think about this question and that is, I, as a consumer, I have lots of choices in terms of fintech companies that I could open crypto accounts with. How should I choose which is best, if you could comment on that? Well, ironically, a lot of this comes down to trust. I say ironically because trust is one of the things that crypto is ultimately designed to eliminate. But what we found in starting Abra and, and some of our competitors, who, and, and many of them are friends of mine, is that it's the promise of being your own bank and being able to not have to trust a company like Abra, that's that's the important thing about what Bitcoin, Ethereum, DeFi, NFTs, all of that enables. Maybe you're using Abra because you trust that we make it really easy for you. But I would also say and claim that we're also making it possible for you to not have to use Abra if you don't want to, and you're in a mode where, hey, you know what, I don't trust any, the proverbial S is hitting the fan, and I want to take my crypto offline, and you should be allowed to do that. And a lot of companies like, you know, I'll, I'll single out Robinhood, for example, and even Square in the early days, it took them a while to get there. They don't let users take agency over their own cryptocurrency, which defeats the purpose of having crypto in the first place. And, and so we're trying to be not only the easiest way to buy, sell, trade, earn interest, and then eventually borrow, but put our money where our mouths are by saying, hey, this is what we want for ourselves. We want to be able to take control over this and not have to trust any one company, including mine, right? And, and, and ask those questions saying, are you forcing me to trust you forever? Which is, you know, I'm sorry, but Robinhood is doing it wrong. If they're still doing that, I hope they're not, but maybe they, I think they are. And, and so, you know, I, we have users where we have to basically get on the phone and help them get out of Coinbase because it's so hard, so ridiculously hard to withdraw your own crypto that it, you just feel like a prisoner. And that's not the right way to do this. That's not why crypto exists in the first place. Again, it's about personal agency and, and personal sovereignty or self-sovereignty, if you will, over your own wealth and, and, and assets. I like that self-sovereignty. On that note, the last question I'll ask you is, what are your thoughts on CBDC, central bank issuing digital currencies, and how does that impact both crypto as a trading asset as well as a payment vehicle, i.e. currency? Yeah, so it's, it's really ironic that a lot of people think this is the best use case for crypto. And that couldn't be further from the truth, right? I mean, look, the, the problem with money is not that it's hard to distribute. The problem with money is that governments control it and their interests are not aligned with the people's interests, right? And so, you know, inflation is effectively a tax on the poor and, and the lower middle class to the wealthy. 
And even though it doesn't necessarily help even the wealthiest over, over long stretches, which is what we've seen in the last 18 months for sure. And so creating a central bank digital currency or CBDC does not solve that problem. If anything, it, in some ways it makes it worse because it's so much easier to distribute the money that you just arbitrarily keep printing. And so the beauty of a true proof of work based cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is that you eliminate the potential for a centralized actor to put their finger on the print button and not take it off. And so a central bank digital currency, yeah, it's, it's very interesting exercise from a technology perspective, doesn't really solve the problem inherent with government driven monetary policy. Now that having been said, it is useful for certain types of transactions. And, and I think the private money versions of CBDCs, which we know as, as stable coins, are really interesting because they can facilitate cross-border transactions with no banks without obviously having a volatile currency in the middle. They can do you know, trading without having to move money in and out of your bank account if you already happen to have stable coins. I think they're going to be really interesting for supply chain, cross-border supply chain transactions and settlements. So, so they have an interesting place as a, a replacement for certain types of banking transactions, but they don't fix the problems inherent in a government-driven monetary system. I like that. So we're at 546 Pacific. I'll open up to the audience now. So audience, you're welcome to come on stage or send us your questions and we'll read it for you. If you are new, oh, Tammy's the first one. So Tammy, welcome. If you're new, you there is an icon, like a hand raise in the bottom right. If you click on that, we'll bring you up on stage. Or there's also an icon like an airplane. If you click on that, you can send me and or Manisha and we'll read your question. But reminder that we are recording, so you'll have to state your name or we or will state your name if we're reading your question. So with that, Tammy, welcome back. If you want to introduce yourself and share your thoughts. Hey, good evening. Tammy Fleming, Financial Services. Uh, Great story, Bill. It's really exciting to hear everything that is going on with Abra. Bakad, just a, a challenge to you. I, I feel like we're together in this. I, I feel like a little kid on the playground watching this merry-go-round spin fast, and I want to get on because it looks fast, but I'm a little scared. So I challenge you, let's, let's take the plunge together and, and jump in and, and get in this. Bill, I have a clarifying question for you, actually. Does, do, in your processes, are you using QR codes? Yes. So in, in some places, yes. It's pretty rare. The only, most of the times that a QR code gets used, it's, it's referral marketing. In the app, you could take a picture of a QR code to process a deposit, but mostly they're used for referral marketing. Okay, so do you have, and just a, a follow-up then on that, I guess you know, anytime I hear of any product using a QR code, I'm like, I want to run the opposite direction just because of all the security and, you know, hackers taking over the fraudulent activity that can go on with um, QR codes. Can you speak to your security yeah, control? Yeah, and thank you. In the case of, my pleasure, in the case of the QR codes, it's really just taking you to the App Store. So I wouldn't worry about that. And at that point, you can obviously read the reviews for Abra, which are very good and whatnot. And so we have a lot of folks at Abra whose background is in uh, information security, cryptography, 
I was also a, a, a cryptographer for the Central Intelligence Agency many, many years ago. So we understand, and, and I also was on the team at Netscape that deployed SSL, which is the uh, S in HTTPS when you're surfing the web. And we designed that obviously to be able to process credit card transactions securely on the internet. So, so we have a very different perspective, not only on information security, which is the direct aspect of your question, but the indirect aspect is also broader, which is risk management, which relates not only to information security, but to how you're managing and lending the assets that you are generating uh, yield on as well. And so we have a team that meets uh, every single week that looks at everything that's happening in and around Abra from a risk management perspective. And we're constantly pushing the envelope on how to do better in this area. And I think we're pretty unique in the crypto space in, in this regard. Great. Thank you for your time. Sure and thing. this is Tammy. Thank you, Tammy. Hi, Rafa. Welcome, welcome on stage if you want to give a little intro and then ask your question. Hi, thank you. Yeah, I'm Rafa Maya. I'm the director of growth or airtime. So uh, fascinating story, uh, Bill. Thank you for the context. I have a quick question around loans and your journey for building them. I'm curious whether you're actively using smart contracts in your underwriting and ultimately whether there are ups and downs in the price of Bitcoin. Are you functioning as a, as a truly DeFi uh, app uh, where... For example, there's a price in a change of uh, Bitcoin. Sorry, if there's a change in the price of Bitcoin, uh, you may do the execution or whatnot of the collateral, or you're serving as a regular traditional uh, app that you have. Uh, it's not necessarily decentralized. You have your regular uh, backend. Um, sure, I, I think we may have lost Rafa, but the question was around: Is what we're doing truly decentralized in the sense of DeFi, where we're using smart contracts? And the answer is no. The lending models that we use are actually CFI or centralized finance based where it's all kind of centrally managed managed by Abra's own systems along with our partner, bank partner, Prime Trust, who is actually the custodian of, of legal record. And, uh, you know, the, the collateral versus uh, loan to value ratio is all managed by our shared systems between Abra and Prime Trust. And we do use a small amount of DeFi-based lending on the yield generation part of our business, but it's, I, I believe the actual value is probably like 10% or less. It actually generates phenomenal returns for our customers. The problem is it's very difficult to manage because it's 24-7. And if you know anything about DeFi, these smart contracts are very complex. Historically, you know, some of them have had hacks. And so we've gone very slow with DeFi and instead have managed the lending directly ourselves. Huge believers in where DeFi is going. I believe it is a big part of the future of banking, but we're not quite there yet. Got it. Thank you for that. And I have just a follow-up question around your journey as well. What has been the, the most challenging thing around building Avra? Has it been the regulations or has it been the technology? Has it been the partnerships? How, how do you see it uh, coming along? I think you just summarized the list of challenges really well. <laughs> so, I, I mean... You know, when you're in a space where when you start, you can't hire anyone because no one understands what you're talking about. There's no clear regulation. There's very little traditional early stage VCs that are investing. Now it's all changed. Everybody wants to work in crypto. Every VC is getting into it. Everybody will take a meeting on crypto. It sounds great, but it, it's been six years of pain 
in addressing everything on the list you just mentioned. And, and so, and then of course, acquiring customers on top, which obviously should be at the top of the list. And, and so now it all sounds like, oh my God, this is amazing, but it's like, you know, a few months of, of, of luck after multiple years of sweat and tears. Got it. Well, thank you very much and, and uh, great journey and good luck for the next uh, set of users. Thanks, Rafa. I appreciate that. Thank you, Rafa. And William, hi. Hi, guys. Thank you so much. And thank you, Bill, for your introduction and insights, which is phenomenal. I guess my question, I think previous question kind of touched my question. So even though you are not 100% DeFi, but there are some DeFi platforms, DeFi apps that offering, you know, a lot of the banking features, saving, lending. So I'm just curious, in your view, what what do you see your competition with the new banks? Um, in your grand vision, do you think new banks going to become obsolete in some way in the future? Five years, 10 years, I don't know. Um, and also, if you don't mind, next, next question is, how do you feel about those credit card strategy? For example, um, BlockFi, they're offering credit cards to their users for, for them to earn cryptos with them. Thank you so much. Thanks, William. Uh, great question. I think that ultimately the neobanks really aren't that different from the traditional banks. I mean, most of these neobanks are basically operating without their own bank license or bank charter, and they're effectively borrowing that charter in exchange for fees from another bank. And then they're willing to uh, charge less fees and, and hopefully you know, have an economy of scale in their business. And so I would actually posit they're really not that different than traditional banks. They're just trying to be nimbler and faster in terms of how mm -hmm. they acquire customers and how they get to market. That's not yeah. really interesting to us. We're looking at a crypto-centric world based upon a global movement towards decentralized systems. And that means cryptocurrencies at its core, yes, smart contracts and DeFi eventually, things like NFTs, decentralized applications or dApps. And we don't know how all of that is going to play out. Right now, it's very mm -hmm. simple. People want to trade crypto. They want to earn yield. Maybe they want to borrow against it. I don't know how it's going to evolve. I think the idea of a credit card as a way to access the borrowing that you've done against your crypto is awesome. And so, you know, I don't want to give it all away, but it's, you know, it's a really good idea, <laughs> at least in my opinion and in Abra's opinion. So, so very astute there, but you know, it's really early. I mean, most people aren't even yet holding cryptocurrency, never mind borrowing against it. So, so we're trying to go stepwise through this to give people the tools that they want that are appropriate for, for where they are in the journey. You know, we had this tagline at Abra called Conquer Crypto. And, you know, we're at this stage where conquering crypto means just giving most people access, right? We're not, and, and yeah, we have a lot of these people who are very sophisticated doing all kinds of amazing stuff in DeFi, but that's a very small minority of people so far. The, mess, the rest of the public isn't even close to catching up to that yet. Okay, thanks. Uh, is that, William, was, did you have any follow-up or? Oh yeah, the, 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 how, how do you think of the credit card strategies a few, a few of those crypto companies are doing? Well, as I said, we're big fans. We're a big believer in it. I don't want to 
really say any more than that because then I have to start talking about uh, specific things. But let's just say, as I have said twice now, we're really excited about that approach. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Sure thing. Thanks, William. And then we have about three minutes, Bill. So there's one question from the back channel. It's from Sushil, and he's in the tech industry as well. And he's asking, he's looking at your website clearly, and he's asking about the lending side. On your website, it says that you can withdraw, basically the questions around stable coins. You offer mm -hmm. three options, trust, uh, USD, USD coin, and, and PAX dollar. So the three stable coins, could you elaborate a little bit more about the user experience? How, what are these stable coins? How does one cash out? Yeah. So he's curious about that. Yeah, it's very simple. So you can deposit uh, using, I think we support like six different stable coins, actually, TrueUSD, Tether, uh, USDC, which is growing the fastest in the US, DAI, PAX dollar. You can deposit any of them. You can actually convert between them for a very tiny fee. We don't make any money on it. It's just a network fee. And you can also withdraw them. They're all Ethereum-based stable coins. And so if you have an external wallet, like a MetaMask or another exchange account, you can easily do that. We also allow you to withdraw them to your bank accounts. So you can convert any of them to our base stable coin, which I believe is USDC. And then you can withdraw that directly to your bank accounts. And so there's no fee for doing that either. So, so we make it really easy to get in and out, not only via other wallets and crypto uh, systems, but also directly to your bank. Lovely. Thank you. And I think actually Tammy has another question. So Tammy, if you want to ask. Hey, thank you, Ambika. Bill, it's Tammy again. And I think this is a follow on from Rafa's question when he was talking about all the lessons learned. Where you are today, is there one thing that you wish you knew and had done when you first started on this uh, venture that would have helped you? Probably. Well, I know for sure there is. I, I would say we had a very interesting idea on how to bring this to market around payments and you know money transfer. And we were way too early for that. The ecosystem around cryptocurrency that we would have needed to make that scale still doesn't exist today, never mind five years ago. So we had to course correct and say, okay, we know that as a crypto banking play, the market will get there and catch up to us eventually. But in the meantime, how are we going to bring this to market? And, and, and that's where we really, I think, tested a whole access to crypto and then landed on the model that everybody knows is Abra today, where you have the, the trade, earn, borrow, and then eventually you'll see pay. Great. Interesting. Thank you. Sure. All right. I know we're at eight. Uh, Bill, I did receive one more question on the back channel. Just want to do a time check, though. Do you have time for one or should we? Run? Sure. Let's do one more. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so this question comes from Neo Kai or Chi. I'm sorry if I'm <laughs> saying that wrong. He says, my question for Bill is, how does the recent BlockFi settlement affect Abra? And related also for the DeFi related offerings, how do you mitigate the smart contract risk? Well, I suppose two questions. So one on the settlement and then two on the smart contract risk. And if you're short on time, maybe if you want to pick one. Yeah, so both are quick. So on the BlockFi settlement, I can't really comment on BlockFi's own situation. We've analyzed it. We think we understand 
what they were doing. We don't operate the way we, excuse me, we don't operate the way they do. We're actually operating through our partner bank, Trust Bank Prime Trust. So to my knowledge, uh, we're the only company in the space that's doing that, meaning we're forcing our users to open up trust accounts to actually earn the interest in Abra Earn. And, you know, we are in very regular conversations with both state and federal regulators on most of our products. And we've never been in a situation where they've openly said, oh, we think you're doing something that you're not allowed to do. That hasn't, that hasn't happened. They ask us questions all the time. We answer the questions, but we've never been, certainly to my knowledge, and I'm pretty knowledgeable about what's going on, accused of, of doing anything incorrectly. And, and so similar to Williams, or no, I think it was Rafa's question about smart contracts. We don't really have that risk today because most of what we're doing is what we would call CFI based, which is centralized. We're using a very, very small amount of DeFi for yield generation. So we're not um, using smart contracts for our own. Those are centrally managed by Abra and Prime Trust. So I think that's the answer to that question. Okay, thank you. So Bill, one last thing actually, are you hiring? And if so, what are the main roles you're looking for? Oh my God, yeah, we're hiring across the board marketing, sales, finance, uh, engineering, we'll probably double the company this year. We grew by about five or six X last year. I suspect we'll at least double this year, wow. if not more. Wow. Yeah. Lovely. And it's all remote or are you specifically uh, officially remote? We have concentrations on the coasts, but, uh, but yes. Nice. Okay. Well, uh, thank you. I want to thank you for actually creating this YouTube channel and putting so much content out there because over the years, that's how I've learned about crypto. So thank you. And it's, it's been an honor to just pick your brain about this and learn a little bit about the crypto industry. So thank you for all that you've been doing uh, since your first TED talk on Bitcoin to now and the future. Uh, thank you, Ambika and Manisha. Thank you both. This was really great. And I'm honored that you would have me on. Certainly. Ours, ours. <laughs> have a great evening. So with that, that's the end for today. We'll be back next week. Uh, we'll continue conversation on a different fintech. Thank you for sharing your time and uh, the evening with us today. With that, I wish you all have a good night. Thank you.